Good evening and welcome to the Hamilton Wealth Partners webinar. We're joined this evening, uh, but morning time in the UK, by Chris Tinker, one of the founding partners of Libra Investment Services. Um, so welcome, Chris, and I'll, I'll just will read out a general advice warning just to commence. Um, the information contained in this webinar has been provided as general advice only. The contents have been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. You should, before you make any decisions regarding any information, strategies or products mentioned in this webinar, consult your advisor to consider whether that is appropriate to having your objectives, financial situation and needs taken into account. As with other webinars, we're going to take into account questions. If you go to the bottom at the conclusion, that is, of Chris's presentation, you'll see that little chat box. So please feel free to um, type in questions and we'll, we'll come to those at the end. Now listen, um, Chris's bio and um, also a paper he did has been pre-circulated with the invitation as also on our website. I've asked to talk to Chris because of his understandings on both macroeconomics and what his paper also illustrated, macro events. I've known Chris for over 20 years. We used to work together in Hong Kong. Um, what I've been talking about in notes to UA clients lately is about this term looking across the valley. The one thing about looking across the valley though is, which I don't think people have properly appreciated, is when you, you, you step across, it will be at a lower level than where we stepped off. That's the first thing. The second thing is, how deep is this valley? I don't think we really know that as, at this stage as well. And the third thing is how wide. So I think when this initially started, I was very much looking at a V-shaped recovery. I think we're now looking at somewhat of a, of a U-shaped recovery. And this is the disparity we're seeing between markets and the economies at the moment. So look, enough from me. Welcome, Chris. Good morning to you in the UK. And I'm going to hand over to you. Thank, thank you, Will. And uh, good evening to, to everybody online. Uh, this, this, is a, this is a very a good opportunity for somebody to perhaps give a, uh, an insight from this side of the world as to how things are. I think the real reality of recent events has been that everybody is focused very closely on their local news flow and their local understanding of what the day-to-day -day impact of recent events has been and sometimes it's important to realize that not only is everybody in this all together but the global economy and the roles and relationships in the global economy have been significantly impacted by events and will be very different going forward. Will's framing of the UVW shape recoveries that may or may not be out there in his recent notes uh, resonates with a lot of the observers in the, in the macro environment based in the UK and, and in the US in particular. But I think we also need to take um, a pause for thought here because one of the earlier pieces I wrote was to draw a parallel not to market events but to geopolitical events and saying and seeing that what's happened in 2020 is much closer to what happened in 1989 than what happened in 2008 for the markets or even 1929 for the markets and what i mean by that is history is useful as a guide to see what happens when change dramatically happens to economies or systems and in 1989 with the fall of the berlin wall what you saw there was a fundamental rewriting of the future for the former Soviet Union and its republics in a way that perhaps hadn't even been imaginable for its constituent uh, countries and, and peoples um, even five years earlier. 
And I think what we have to bear in mind in the context of what we're seeing now is when I started as an economist in the, in the 1980s in the city, um, we'd just come off the back of something called the Plaza Accord. And the Plaza Accord had set out the framework for foreign exchange markets and how the dollar in particular in relation to the yen was going to change the relationship that markets had to each other. There was a real focus on international trade and integration of economic systems that up until that point had been running in a, in a sort of a parallel universe. And this whole integration of the Japanese industrial model into Western models really formed the backbone for what was going to happen for the next uh, 10, 20 years. And the parallel I would draw here is, we'll just mention we did work together in Hong Kong. And one of the things that we saw at the beginning of this century was the involvement of China in the WTO and the engagement, not just of the Chinese people and its economies, but the engagement of global corporations integrating their own infrastructure, supply chains, production facilities in a country that they simply hadn't had any exposure or access to in the past. And that start point of this, this decade, uh, sorry, of, of this, uh, this century rather, that start of the century lay the groundwork for all the kind of investment decisions we've been making as investors over that subsequent period. We've seen the macro environment being set by what we like to call the G20 environment of guidance towards more open markets, guidance towards uh, government stability of fiscal policy, government control of monetary policy, falling interest rates, fighting inflation, maintaining full employment, all those things that central banks do. And before we start thinking about the shape of that recovery, we've got to also think about how that recovery is going to be engineered, who's going to be responsible for it, and how are they going to make it even work? Because think of that G20 framework that we've become very used to. Think of regular meetings. We have an FOMC monetary meeting today. What are they going to say? You know, what their policy response is possibly going to be when all of the framework of reference that we've had for the last 20 years or more has just been thrown out with the bathwater in the last four to six weeks. Fiscal discipline, which was the guide, uh, the lodestone for uh, capital markets. How do those capital markets now respond to the fact there is no fiscal discipline in the United States whatsoever? Monetary policy is effectively moved to zero. They've created an environment with this pandemic where we have unemployment at unimaginable rates. We have no sense about how we're going to start bringing things back into focus for a U, a V, or a W recovery. I'm not saying we're not going to get a recovery because I think we are, but we've got to be very conscious of the fact that we've become used as investors to seeing the, the macro system responding at the margins. And this is where data becomes very critical. So, for example, we've got preliminary Q1 GDP data coming out from the United States and from other countries around the world. We're beginning to see these numbers. These economic numbers right now are basically roadkill. We're looking at them. They tell us nothing about what's going to happen in the future. We look at it, we move on. But we are also slightly unnerved by the fact that we no longer have those guide points that we've had from economic information for so long because we want economic information to tell us something about what the policymakers may or may not do so we can position our risks accordingly. What the policymakers are now going to do is exactly nothing, because they can't make a judgment on the basis of no information. 
the coronavirus pa parallel here is the um, epidemiologists, the guys with the numbers, the guys with the numbers who were, um, I apologize, I've got more early morning emails pinging in here, so I shall, uh, I shall try and turn those off if you give me two seconds, because it's probably pinging in your background here as well. So um, um, I, I should just uh, turn that off. Um, but the, the epidemiologists started out with a, a situation where um, they had these models. We had these models that were, were telling policymakers that uh, half a million people could die in the UK, a million and a half people could die in the United States. In those circumstances, um, you, uh, you have a situation where um, what can a policymaker do? He has to respond to that information he's been given. Within a couple of weeks, those data points changed. The expectations of death rates fell. But the policy decision that had been taken wasn't about to be unwound for the simple reason that we had more data, but we didn't have enough data to make the next decision. And this is exactly what the economic data set that we're now seeing is going to be telling us. If you think about the headlines that you see coming through the news wires at lunchtimes um, in, in, the, uh, in the US where everybody is focusing on the latest employment number, well, what's that going to tell us now? That's not going to tell us anything that suggests anything about policy. Equally, the, 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 the key data points that have started to emerge in the last uh, few years are these uh, purchasing manager indices. Now, apart from having some dramatic headline of minus 37 or whatever the number happens to be, it gives us no guidance realistically to what the economic policy response is going to be yet. Um, the purchasing manager's diffusion index is simply asking a whole bunch of people what they think is going to happen going forward. And I think you would be lucky to get any information out of any of those kind of indices until economies are back on track. So right now we're flying blind. We're in a cockpit without any lights or any instruments. And the markets are looking at what they used to look at and saying, does this help me? And from an economic standpoint, what we really want to understand is what is happening on the other side of that valley? Where are we going to be seeing things happen? In economic analysis, these um, what are called nowcasts, this access to very current information to try and add the information at the margin to what's going on with the real economy, these nowcasts have become very popular. But at the moment, they can't tell us anything. And what it comes down to is the only thing that you're really going to be able to rely on is actually the information that comes not from the top-down macro but from the bottom-up picture coming from the corporates. The corporates will know what's going on with demand. They will know what's going on with their margins as we go through the next one to two quarters. And this is relevant because historically, investors have made the decision about companies after they've made the decision about the macro, after they've made their decision about interest rates, and the discount rate and the equity risk premium and what you want to own relative to what else you want. But all of this stuff has changed. It's not just that the policymaker doesn't know how to stimulate the economy. He can have a go at building some infrastructure. He can have a go at introducing policy to have uh, different healthcare structures. If you look at countries like France, which have introduced a policy of the government paying all your utility bills, that's going to be a real challenge for the French authorities to unwind in a world where they've spent 18 months having weekly, daily riots on the streets by people protesting against reform to pension systems, suddenly you go back and tell all those people, 
the free stuff you've had for the last three months is disappearing, well, that's going to be very different, very difficult, sorry, to, to unwind anytime soon. And so structures like the EU, from an economic standpoint, have already revealed there's no top-down stimulus that you can add on to what have been these emergency measures. And if we look over the last decade, we can see that the emergency measures that were introduced in 2008 are still here. For the US, they tried to reverse the interest rate cuts. The, um, uh, the US Federal Reserve got interest rates to a positive curve. The markets fell out of favor with that process. President Trump fell out of favor with um, Jay Powell at the Fed. And suddenly he was saying, America should have interest rates at zero like everybody else. Well, he's got his wish, but there's no yield curve. So how do you structure returns, for example, if you're a bank, if you have no yield curve? How can you borrow short and lend long? How do you structure asset and liability if you're an insurance company when you can't get an asset and liability match because there's no long-term interest instrument that you can invest in? These are challenges that the authorities recognize but can't do anything about right now. And that's why when we're looking at what the corporates are able to do, we've got to think about which sectors are likely to be winners. Well, I mentioned at the beginning the global supply chain that shifted to China in the early 2000s. Those large multinational companies that took advantage of that, that did the outsourcing, they also realized that the game is up you aren't going to launch a business model in 2020 saying I've got this really good idea to make a healthcare care equipment in China. Will you give me some money to do so? That's not going to be a business model that most investors would buy into. Far more likely that you're going to be seeing people locating production facilities closer to the demand markets in the, uh, the G7 or the G10. So companies will be adapting and adopting to make sure they're in line with the politics of the time. The politics of the time that allowed you to offshore your production facilities to China and, and uh, East Asia, those companies will be hanging on to whatever profitable elements they can have from that, but they are going to be the companies that really have productivity benefits rather than just margin cost benefits in those areas. It's going to be companies like TSMC, it's going to be the fab companies in Taiwan, in other words, it's going to be the tech companies in Korea who their products will still be in demand, the capacity and the ability to manufacture high skill production facilities isn't gonna change whatever anybody says about it all started in China or it all started in you know, anywhere but here. So those companies, their profitability isn't really gonna be changing, but the politics around how they make their money will be changing. So when you look at what you have available to you as an investment, there's something else to bear in mind here. The investment horizon that was developed by academics and theorists from the 1950s onwards was all about this idea of um, optimizing your portfolio and managing your risk. And this is the sort of thing that uh, disclaimers are given at the front of every one of the thousands of webinars being uh, broadcast right now. These points of uh, contribution of assets to your portfolio based on a framework which saw there being a time premium for money, saw there being a reward for taking risk, and saw there being a portfolio of assets that you hold against that backdrop. 
All these things are now up in the air. There is no time premium for money right now. Whether you've got one month money or one year money or five year money, it's basically zero if you can borrow. That's not an environment that the policymakers like. They recognize the problems that creates, but equally they recognize right now they can't do anything about it. And so what we have to look at as investors observing the macro trends is to say, the companies who can operate well in this environment will come to the fore. We'll see that by what they tell us is going on. We'll see that by what the analysts who are looking at those companies identify as potential um, positive impacts on probably the most important thing you can have as an investor, which is access to future cash flows. That's actually what we all focus on. When, it come, when push comes to shove in the world's equity markets, the companies that you want to own are those that have positive cash flows and that you are effectively taking a share of by owning uh, equity in that company. Now, put that against the backdrop that we now see of companies that are basically insolvent and being kept going by the short-term incentives being provided by governments to maintain workers on furlough schemes like we have in the UK, or you have the government directly paying wages like you see in the US, or you have a number of companies that will make the zombie companies of the um, 2008-2010 period um, look as nothing to what we will be seeing now. Insolvent companies are still insolvent companies, and investors have to be very careful that they're not just owning companies who exist purely on the basis of what the temporary arrangements the governments have put in place are, because those arrangements may become permanent. And so therefore, if you are going to make an investment decision, it has to be on the basis of the company's information that they're giving you. And one of the frameworks that I use uh, in describing what, what, uh, what we do is that this is top down from the bottom up, because much as the now casting of information around economic indicators is of value, and believe me, I've done enough economic forecasts to know the limitations of that, the real evidence is that if you understand what's going on at the corporate level on an ongoing basis, you can build up a picture of what's happening in the real economy in an actually much more efficient way than people may realize. So to conclude about what I think the economic outlook is and where I think the reinvestment environment risks are, it's about understanding that there are gonna be winners out of this. There's no doubt that people will still be buying copper. They will still be making construction projects funded by governments into the next decade where you can expect to see manufacturing of materials and equipment and components for production facilities all continuing to happen. Machine tools will still be made, production facilities may be relocated, but they'll still be happening. So the company level information is going to be critical to understand the shape of that recovery because policymakers are no longer in a position to influence at the margin. They've made their choices, they've made their decisions, they're having to sit back now and see what happens. And for an investor, you're now guided not by the GDP number, not by the consumer demand figures. You're ultimately going to be, be guided by the bottom line that you're seeing coming through the corporates. And those are the companies that will ultimately get invested in by third party investors. Because if I'm not getting a yield from a yield curve, if I'm not getting paid for a time premium for money, the only use that my money can have is to start participating in somebody else's future cash flows. And I need to know what those companies are, 
because they're the ones that are going to be able to pay me a dividend. They're the ones that are going to give me a capital gain. They're the ones that I'm going to make an investment return from. We don't know exactly who those companies are right now, but they're going to be telling us on a very regular basis what their outlook is, and that's really the most important data set we're going to be looking for. Like the epidemiologists, we're going to be looking at corporate level data over the next three, six, and 12 months, and that's going to shape the investment landscape for the next decade. So I'll stop there as a sort of an overview and an oversight. If there are any questions, I'm happy to take them. Or Will, I'll throw it back to you if you want to have any follow-up on those, uh, those, those thoughts. Thank you, Chris. That was really good. Look, um, we do have a, one question straight out. So um, from Ian Gillies, which indicators do you believe are most likely to be considered leading in this situation? This, um, the idea of lead, leading indicators, um, when, when they sort of first emerged, one of, the, one of the key leading indicators was the market. Um, and very often that was because of the, the frequency of data and the, uh, and the perceived information set that, uh, that, that it communicated for, uh, for the economy. I think that is still probably the most appropriate guide point. Um, I'll give you an example from the S&P. There's only half a dozen stocks, and you can guess which ones they are, that have really led this recovery back. Um, they're the big tech companies. And what characteristics do they have? Nobody questions their, their cash flows. Nobody questions their margins. And everybody recognizes their ability to borrow. So if they want to borrow, at zero or minus, you know, real real interest rates. This is something I'll you know, use the example of LVMH in, in a piece I wrote recently. LVMH raising money at minus 0.5 for five years to go and buy Tiffany. If somebody's giving you money to go and buy somebody else's cash flows, you're going to be doing it. So, I think that the leading indicators will be the headlines on the markets, but they're also going to be financial demand indicators relating to levels of corporate borrowing, relating to activities, turnover activities in the repo market. These, these actually quite technical factors about market normalization will be important. We've just seen volatility drop, but that's a quarter end thing. So don't get too sucked into some of those technicals. Um, and what I would warn about is, um, you look at what happened with WTI pricing and the near month contract going negative, Everybody thought that was an indicator of the collapse in demand. But the indicator of the collapse in demand was the, uh, was the, the, the tonnage rates for um, shipping storage capacity. Those kind of real world leading indicators will become much more relevant to us when we see how much oil is in storage, where storage capacity is, Baltic shipping rate numbers. These, I think, will be guides to what's going on in global demand that will be looked at much more closely um, over the next three to six months. And the secondary conditions are, we don't know what inflation is going to do because we don't know from what base we're moving from. We don't know what GDP numbers ultimately are going to be focused on. We also really know that if you're seeing fiscal stimulus coming through from government, that has got quite a long lag to it. We're not going to see people switching on infrastructure expenditure overnight. We're not going to be seeing people managing the flow out of uh, the short-term situation we're in of 
people being furloughed, in other words, being subs subsidized for their, um, for their labor. The authorities will unwind those programs, but what that means in terms of whether headline unemployment numbers as a lead indicator start falling sharply or whether they have some structural um, uh, drag within those data points, I think we've got to be cautious that we're not, we're not reacting as if those numbers are a function of what we would normally expect. They're going to be quite different. So economic data, um, I think we will be looking at monthly uh, demand series just to get a sense of how quickly demand bounces back in some areas. But that's just going to give us a fair sense of how much noise is out there. I don't think it's going to give us a great sense of direction. I would look for those larger term factors such as um, Baltic dry and indicators like that as a, a, as a framework that people will start trying to get a sense of global trade coming back, which, which is you know, perhaps the one thing that you can look across markets and get a sense of. Um, whereas what's going on in Europe, who knows what's going to go on in Europe compared to what's going on in the US, or what's going on in Mexico and Canada compared to what's going on in um, you know, Argentina and Brazil. The, the localization of some of the impacts here are going to mean it's going to be quite difficult to understand local economic dynamics, but some of the international trade flows will be useful. Just one thing, here in Australia, uh, we have this unique thing called franking credits. Um, and then we've had banks that have paid out very high payout ratios. And we've seen National Australia Bank that 18 months ago was paying out over a dollar. It's actually come out with a capital raising this week um, in excess of $3 billion, but it's paying out $800 million in dividends, so $0.30 cents a share. So it's, it's effectively over a 70% cut from where we were 18, 18 months ago. We're now approaching zero or close to zero on our interest rates, and I think that people don't realise what has happened to banks in Europe. Uh, continental Europe, that is, can, and therefore the NIM or the net interest margin, as you're just talking about, you know, you know borrow short, lend long, um, it's just been absolutely crushed. So one thing I'm very worried about is the, the four self-funded retirees, as we call them here in Australia, the number that are reliant on bank dividends, and I think that banks, even though they've fallen 50%, they're not a great investment at these levels. Can you just give us some illustration as to what has happened in Europe, please? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think the uh, the end game in Europe um, is monetization, um, and this is something that the Germans have been resisting. I think the end game in the United, in the United States is probably monetization to a degree as well. And what I mean by that is there's a great resistance to the fact that the the Treasury issues debt, the central bank buys it in, um, and the central bank pays interest on the debt. Um, to the treasury. So it just becomes an accounting process. Now, what gets caught up in that? The banks, because the banks are essentially seeing uh, interest rates on government debt going to zero. Um, the banks have been told in the last 18 to 24 months that they have to pay a premium to deposit um, at the central bank, at the ECB. So therefore, the ability to uh, have sufficient capital balance to be able to lend uh, and you have to have appropriate assets to hold against that, uh, those loans, um, it's been costing the banks more money than they can actually charge on the other side. So as a result, 
the banking system has, has basically been a zombie state. And you have to also rationalize the fact that within Europe, there is no fiscal consolidation of liabilities. So what, what that means is that uh, the Germans don't underwrite the Spanish fiscal debt. Now, the Club Med countries, as they're called, which is France, Italy, Spain, Greece, Portugal, um, they all want to see bonds issued by the ECB backed by the whole of Europe. Um, of course they do, because at the moment, the, the austerity that's been in existence in Europe has constrained uh, fiscal spending. Well, all of that's just gone out the window. But for the banks, who are they going to lend to at what price? Because um, LVMH, one of the sort of national champions in France, very well politically connected, as I mentioned, raising money below zero and using those assets to buy other companies. This is the sort of intermediary role that the market is now providing. The bank used to provide that role. The, you know, the uh, BNP would have provided the facilitation for that. Well, they, they, they can run a transaction of issuing debt on behalf of uh, LVMH and they can clip the coupon um, of, uh, of their advisory business by saying, we, you know, we, sold the, we sold the bonds out the left-hand side and help you buy the company through the right-hand side. But that's not an interest margin game anymore. That's, a, that's an advisory facilitator game. And so the problem that the banks have is because they can't make an interest margin story work anymore, because they either have to provision such a large extent that they can't charge on the other side, or the demand <coughs> that they have coming through just hasn't, hasn't been sufficiently credit worthy for them to even be able to make those lendings. The central banks and the authorities have have kind of stepped into that breach of, of facilitation, but a lot of the economy has stagnated across Europe for the very reasons that that banking system is no longer working as a risk intermediary. And your point about what may be the issue in Australia is that you know, if, if I look at what central banks are doing, they're creating an environment where there is no curve because that was a temporary policy response. But then on the other side of that, the large corporate that can raise it close to zero interest is very happy that there isn't a curve because he doesn't have to pay a premium. And so long as that is in place, the banking ability to provision um, against a credible loan book at the same time as not even knowing what his bad loan outlook is in the wake of all of this means that he's going to be told by the, you know, the regulators are saying to all the banks in the UK and in Europe, you don't pay dividends because we don't know what the downside is. We're not going to bail you out again if you suddenly have to write off, you know, billions in bad, bad loans because you've led to companies that are basically bankrupt um, and you've got to write them off. We don't want you to have paid out your equity uh, capital in the form of dividends to your investors. So you've just got to stop doing that. And one of the reasons that banks were paying out high levels of dividends was because actually they weren't getting the return on their capital that justified keeping that capital internally. They were distributing it to owners because they weren't generating returns. It, the mature company cycle that you've seen in other countries where the investor gets paid a high dividend, it's not that you're getting a dividend payment because there needs to be a premium on owning that equity because there's a risk to it. You're just accessing 
a margin and getting the return from it because the company itself isn't being able to multiply that by redeploying its own capital. So that mature business model for the banks has just had its legs cut from under it by the central banks. And that isn't going to come back anytime soon. And I think investors have to be very aware of the fact that if you've relied on income in the past, you've, you've had this sense that the equity risk premium exists because you are being paid a premium because you're taking a risk on owning that equity. You've got to flip it on its head now. It's a case of if you want a return, you are going to have to give money to somebody that can generate a return. And the risk you take is that they can make that return. And the one thing you have to say about the banks is very difficult to justify why you would give money to a bank if you think the bank isn't really able to make a return on its core business. And that's the challenge that the banking system's got worldwide and is one of the reasons why nobody goes near European banks. And you know, you only got to translate that over to the insurance industry. If you think about your term premium liabilities associated with, um, with writing life insurance policies, when you literally are guaranteeing that when you buy a government debt instrument with it, you're going to lose money, how are you, how are you going to run your liability books as an insurance company? You know, if you're throwing off excess returns because of uh, uh, a premium income is allowing you to pay out excess returns short term, who's managing your long-term liability? Because you can't do it through the market instruments you're used to. And these changes are going to change the way people allocate capital as investors, not just in Australia, but worldwide. And these, these are big things to be monitoring. Despite the UVW-shaped economic story, the big thing to really be conscious of is the ability for industries and companies to make returns on capital is going to be the only thing you can invest in going forward. And the financial sector is really you know, in the spotlight as to how on earth they're going to do it, given the policy backdrop that the authorities have introduced. Um, someone's asked, do you have any comments on the zombie firms being discussed where cheap money is propping up unviable businesses? How do we know which companies to avoid to avoid contagion, contagion of the zombies? Well, I think part of the problem, it's a good question. Um, part of the problem with the zombie companies is that because we've seen an, an emergency policy response globally, uh, it's been very indiscriminate. In a, in a way, companies in Europe and the UK and to a lesser extent in the US, zombie companies have been kept going by cheap money and the availability of credit um, for the last seven or eight years where nothing's been called to account. But what's actually beginning to occur, and going back to you know, listening to what's coming out of the corporate uh, communications headlines, companies, particularly companies that have been shut down and are now in economies that are beginning to open up again, some of these companies are already making the tough decision, do I open up at all? If you think about the food and beverage industry, for example, a lot of businesses were running on very, very fine margins, a 10%, 10% margin. You can't operate at 60% capacity and make any money. So some of the bullets that are going to be bitten here are actually by the uh, people who've been propping things up for cheap money. Some of those are VC funds. Some of those are uh, high, uh, private investors, high net worth individuals who have got something in their portfolio that they figure that eventually they'll be able to get their money back. When you realize you're not going to be able to get your initial investment capital back and that that matters, 
much more now because if you think about one of the key criteria of any investor, it's actually you need to minimize loss. You can't afford to make the capital back if returns are very low. So you need to preserve your capital loss. If you have to take a hit now, it's better to take the hit now and redeploy that capital on something that's going to make money. So I think there are going to be some crunch decisions made relatively quickly. Zombie companies can go to a bank and say, can I have more credit? But the bank is now being told by the authorities, what are you doing keeping this company open? You have to justify it. Are you ensuring that you know, critical industry is preserved? Are you helping maintain some national support plan? If not, sorry, that small little property developer isn't worth keeping going. Sorry, that retail outlet, you know, it's just got to get, get with the world, real world and understand that it's all gone online. The companies that are most exposed are those that the building issues associated with things like um, 3D printing for manufacturers, AI distribution, automation. The companies that were beginning to be overtaken by technology and development, you know, they're gonna realize that they're never gonna come back because the people with capital and the people with money aren't gonna invest in yesterday, they're gonna invest in tomorrow. And the, the example of zombie businesses that have just ticked along really without the ability to scale is i think i think we'll find out very quickly where which ones they are because they're just not going to be reopening they're just going to be either becoming m a targets or they're becoming um you know consolidation issues associated with industry consolidation generally shale oil for example in the united states people are picking over the the options already the big boys are looking at who they can take over but shale oil as an industry you will not exist with the oil price below $45 for very long. So those forced events, I think are shaking quite a lot of zombie companies out. Um, all I would say is if you own anything that needs time to recover um, and may depend on third party goodwill, then I don't think we're in a world where we can assume that that's going to come through anymore. And I would suggest that you, you review your exposures in your portfolio management to say, if I can find companies that have got cash on their balance sheets, that have got relatively stable balance sheets, two things are going to happen. They'll still be around and somebody that can raise money at close to zero might want to come along and buy those cash flows in a world where cash flows are going to be needing to be much more visible. And therefore, I may get an M&A type valuation feeding through rather than just some form of broad historic measure of worth. I may actually say somebody's prepared to pay, you know, a premium of 15% for a company's future cash flows because they can raise money at zero. They can afford to pay up for cash flows. That's going to see valuations being supported in companies that have got that visibility. No visibility, no M&A valuation. Very hard to see why anybody would want to make a sort of a leap of faith that that's a company that's worth investing in in such an uncertain environment. Uh, Stuart's asking from a macro viewpoint, what's the risk of some countries being unable to fund their fiscal stimulus, i.e. insufficient buyers of its sovereign debt? This might just be third world countries. And then he's also asked, it might not be third world countries. <laughs> well, the, the, the challenge of the, the the sort of, you know, the, the World Bank model, the G20 model of fiscal responsibility and fiscal debt 
uh, management and therefore the international community buying into that. Um, you know, the people that have, that have ignored that, the, uh, the Zimbabwe's of this world have seen the consequence. Um, the temptation of uh, monetization by Western countries, in other words, what I was mentioning earlier, effectively the central bank issuing the debt, um, and so the treasury issuing the debt and the central bank buying it in, and basically ending up with the debt jubilee. That works if you've got a reserve currency. It doesn't work if you're printing money that nobody wants to own. So the fiscal infrastructure of emerging markets may actually end up being different from the fiscal infrastructure of developed markets for the simple reason that developed markets uh, temporarily at least creating this illusion that they're not monetizing their debt when in actual fact they will be. The problem is that the groups I would focus on are how Europe gets out of its current hole because it wasn't that long ago that Greece was basically put into permanent decline by the fiscal rules that were imposed on them by the ECB and the uh, EU and the Troika, as it was called. Uh, the IMF was sort of thrown in there to pretend it wasn't just about Germany. But the truth of it is, the fiscal discipline that was imposed was from a framework of the Northern European states that do not want to go down this route. The Southern European states, the Club Med, do want to see much more opportunity for fiscal expansion the tension between those two groups isn't being resolved right now. So I think the countries with some of the bigger risks are probably those Southern European countries in the short term, certainly from the point of view of the volume of issued debt that's out there. A lot of, of course, a lot of third world country uh, international debt that's uh, issued is not issued in local currency, it's issued in dollars. And uh, we saw right at the beginning of this crisis the, uh, the world's shortage of dollars saw the dollar go soaring through the roof as people were trying to reduce their liabilities uh, to the dollar and, and the short dollar positions were trying to be covered in, in, in rapid time. Issuing debt becomes a challenge if you're trying to issue in a local currency nobody wants to own in, but it is also an extraordinary risk factor if you've got an exchange rate exposure to issuing in something like US dollars, if you're a country where there seem to be fiscal largesse. So debt funding is gonna be really a, a big unknown for rollovers, let alone for new issuance. And I don't know how it's gonna end up. I suspect there's gonna be some international coordination. There's gonna be some IMF stroke World Bank involvement in supporting international capital issuance by countries so long as they retain some kind of framework of credibility so that the Fed ends up buying in the world's debt to a degree to try and keep things stable. Who knows where that ends up? But what I would say is a chase for yield is probably not rational right now. You know, if, if somebody's paying you a premium on their government debt, there's a reason for it. And uh, the, Fed is, the Fed is basically underwritten corporate credit, junk and investment grade credit, with the work they've done with BlackRock. So they've taken default risk out, but that doesn't apply at the sovereign level in South America, in Central Africa, in, in, in some of the southern states um, of, uh, of uh, the uh, uh, US. Uh, so some of the, the, the county states in the US, the big challenge is what happens when Illinois goes bust? What happens when Newark goes bust? You know, 
it's not just at a state, a sovereign level, it's at a state level as well that there's a big issue associated with debt write-offs that are coming. And I just think the ability to manage the risk or the default risk on that is going to lead to people really running away from some of these markets when they're, when they're being offered the yield because the risk is unquantifiable. And in 98, when we had the credit defaults in Asia, um, suddenly people realized that investing in Asian debt hadn't been the best idea in the world. And actually there was no buyer for it on the other side. And, uh, you know, those lessons have been forgotten now, but they'll come back. And particularly in a world where the alternative is uh, you preserve your capital in a US treasury and you don't get a yield, or you lose your capital in a non-US treasury and you also don't get a yield. Um, I suspect that the, the, the debt markets are going to find reason not to buy that kind of paper anymore. We've got a question here, which I suppose has been debated a lot in the UK since 2016. So does the EU survive? Well, it's, it's got a bit of a crisis on its hands because the politics versus the economics. So a very interesting anecdote in relation to this is um, I was sent a, a press, press comment um, yesterday by, by a friend of mine who written in one of the German papers. And it was going around talking about how the economy of Europe is coping and how it's handling the recovery, the coming out of lockdown, everything else. The focus on the UK was that the UK had um, a massive fiscal deficit and was on the brink of recession. No other country in this German newspaper article even was discussed in terms of its economics. The focus was on the UK saying there's a problem with the UK economy, but not even discussing what was going on in the rest of Europe's economies. And that struck me as quite insightful because what it tells me is that a lot of Europe is just in denial about the economic consequences of this internally. They're very quick to point to what's going on in the UK and say, oh, the UK's got a problem because they want to associate the UK leaving the EU with the UK going down an irrational, dangerous, you know, reckless course. But the truth of it is internally in Europe, this split between the club med countries led by Macron and the Northern European countries um, led by Germany, although not really led by um, Angela Merkel because she just seems to exist, but she doesn't seem to lead anything from an economic standpoint, has become fundamental. There's what's going on internally, which is called these target two transfers, basically means that the monetary system is unsustainable in Europe. The ECB relationship with the sovereign fiscal authorities is an unsustainable one now and they keep kicking the can down the road. They like to talk about other people's problems, but they won't focus on their own. And I would emphasize that internally, a country like France has serious structural problems that are just being ignored. You're getting the, the protests on the streets. There was basically a news blackout. I don't know how much you heard about them, but we've already got riots in Southern Italy because the uh, people haven't got any money and they can't pay for food and they're in lockdown. So they're just going in and taking it out of the shops. You know, these kind of social dysfunctionalities that are starting to happen mean that the EU has been completely absent in terms of a leadership role in the last three to four months. As soon as there was a crisis, Schengen went, country borders were shut down, internal trans, uh, trans, uh, transfer of peoples basically stopped. 
that isn't going to open up again anytime soon. Some of the key considerations of the EU have been abandoned in the crisis. And the question is, do the local politicians have the belief that they want to start going back down that route again? The Italians are no longer talking about the EU. They're running up the uh, Italian national flag and singing the national anthem every day. You know, they're very far away from thinking that Europe's their savior. They've turned around and said, look what happened when we needed medical equipment. You told us there wasn't any Germany. Thank you very much. You know, so it was every man for himself in the crisis. And that's not being forgotten at the, at the populist level across Europe. So the difference between the UK and Europe is that we don't have an election anytime soon. Most of Europe does. And the experience that the general public has had during this crisis has been one about populist demands and populist politicians. This is potentially the death blow for the EU as a construct uh, as far as further integration goes. And um, when it starts getting down to the money, they either print it or they tax you. And the French have told you they're not gonna pay any more taxes. And if you try and take their pensions away, they're gonna riot on the streets. Where are you going to go with that? You're going to have to start printing things. And when you start printing things, people in Italy and Greece and Portugal and Spain go, why haven't we been doing this for 10 years? Why have we suffered in recession for 10 years when this was a solution? They're getting very angry already. So it's, it's, a, it's a time bomb. I wouldn't rule out some major um, conflicts associated with you know, intransigence of economics in, in Europe. And I think there's some there's some real risks associated with uh, European markets because of that over the next 12 to 18 months. Chris, look at that. Uh, thank you. This has been 50 minutes. It's been absolutely fantastic. Um, we really appreciate hearing your insights. Uh, I think some people on this thank call you for asking me on. are going to go off and have a glass of wine now whilst you're about to start your day. So thank you very much. We appreciate it very much. Um, for thank you for asking me on. You will, and for the participants, uh, we're going to have a, another invite go out tomorrow morning with Peter Cooper. So please look out for that. Chris, thank you. And thank you also for all the participants for, your, for listening. We really appreciate it. Have a great evening. Thank you very much. Thanks. Goodbye, everybody.